Welcome to the Hopkins Press Podcast. I'm Mary Alice Yeske with the Hopkins Press Journals Division. Our guest today is Nicholas Tilmes. He is a JD candidate at New York University School of Law. Previously, he served as program manager and research assistant at the NYU Center for Bioethics. His research focuses on the intersection of cognition, law, and technology, ranging from disability rights to neurotechnology and AI. He holds an MA in bioethics from NYU and a BA in philosophy and psychology from Cornell. He joins us today to discuss his paper published in the latest issue of the journal Philosophy, Psychiatry, and Psychology, which examines the areas of psychological diagnosis that are vague or indeterminate and philosophical ways that this vagueness can be reckoned with. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Tilmes. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about your paper. Oh, absolutely. It's a pleasure to be on here. The first question we'd like to ask our guests is, can you tell us your academic origin story? How did you come to study the philosophy of psychiatry? So my origin story is a bit convoluted, but I think looking back, it started coming together. Mm -hmm. As an undergrad, I mostly studied philosophy and psychology because I guess I was interested in thinking and also thinking about thinking, you know, how we arrive at and ground our beliefs. Um, and throughout undergrad, a lot of my interests were sort of on these two separate tracks. Formally, a lot of my coursework, my research was on philosophy of mind and free will. And I was very interested in studying the differences between people's everyday intuitions about, mm -hmm. um, you know, philosophical puzzles and then philosophers' intuitions, because it turns out, you know, we're usually a bit on the odd end. And uh, it turns out that when philosophers take their own intuitions as universal, sometimes their predictions end up being wildly off. <laughs> uh, and then at the same time, um, you know, I was doing a lot of debate, probably too much of it. <laughs> Sorry, does anyone ever do like not enough debate? It's like that doesn't <laughs> exist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there isn't a, a healthy amount. Um, I don't think so. I've never met somebody who was like, I dabbled in debate. <laughs> But yeah, absolutely. Uh, but I was I was reading a lot of disability studies um, oh, okay. as I was doing it, and that was something I never really encountered in formal philosophy because the two are often very cloistered off from each other. Mm -hmm. And uh, that changed for me in graduate school uh, when I was studying bioethics, and suddenly these two sort of interests of mine, philosophy and disability, came crashing together. Mm. And um, philosophy had always been like this very abstract interest of mine. Suddenly it was much more, much more tangible. So there's, there's certainly a very fraught relationship, I guess, between mental health and, and philosophy and psychiatry. Um, but one theme that I, I kept running into is this problem of classification, mm -hmm. right? Mental health and disability are by their nature, very difficult to define. And yet there always are definitions imposed on them, you know, whether it's on actuarial forms, you know, doctors visits, just day-to-day mm -hmm. -day encounters. And so for me, um, you know, like an ethical philosophy of disability has to kind of strike this balance between how do we find a language to articulate uh, it while also acknowledging the ways in which definitions are hard to pin down and end up being fuzzy and messy. Mm -hmm. um, 
And so that that both inspired my thesis, you know, which had more to do with like how algorithms discriminate against people with disabilities, but also led me to this project and the philosophy of psychiatry more broadly. Your paper looks at areas where a psychiatric diagnosis is vague or not concretely quantifiable. Um, what sparked your interest in that specifically and why is that important? Well, I wanted to take a different approach to thinking about the difficulty of defining diagnoses. Mm. There are um, long running debates in the philosophy of psychiatry about what exactly a disorder is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we can see this in, in different psychiatric manuals. Um, there are too many disagreements there for me to chronicle, but, uh, <laughs> you know, the DSM, um, which is sort of the OG manual, mm-hmm. uh, identifies sets of symptoms that tend to appear together, but doesn't really consider, you know, their underlying mechanisms since it's mostly about aiding diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And then you have other um, other manuals, uh, which start from etiology or like their underlying mechanisms, because it thinks about disorders as these kind of discrete natural entities. Um, and so the question I was interested in is maybe we can move some of these debates forward by thinking about, um, you know, not just what conditions are, but, you know, what are the borders of these conditions? Um, how do we deal with the fuzzy cases um, right. sort of at the margins? And uh, in these borderline cases, it's it's vague or it's indeterminate whether it's appropriate to render a diagnosis. Um, you know, so in more practical terms, you know, finding uh, dementia requires things like modest cognitive decline of you know, so many standard deviations or some degree of impairment in your ability to live independently. How do we quantify those things? Is there some number of of memories lost, some number of daily tasks you can't do? Uh, How do we draw the line and why shouldn't we draw it somewhere else? And it turns out those questions end up being really important. Um, Psychiatric diagnoses have a huge impact on people's lives, whether it's, uh, you know, seeking health insurance, whether mm-hmm. you're trying to get disability assistance, um, finding a job, etc. And um, we have to find a kind of Goldilocks solution, because mm-hmm. extending diagnoses too hastily can deprive people of their autonomy, um, mm-hmm. or of certain legal rights. And on the other hand, being too stringent diagnoses means that people aren't getting the medication that they are seeking out. Mm-hmm. So stakes can be um, pretty high. And, you know, I guess at the same time, and I, I suppose we'll get into this, um, different ways of understanding vagueness uh, it implicates both like psychiatric practice, you know, what kind of manuals we use, um, mm-hmm what kind of research we pursue, and also, um, you know, how we think about the philosophy of psychiatry, you know, how do we understand disorders? One of the uh, 
first things you talk about in your paper is something called the sorieties paradox, um, which is kind of a really great way to think about these, these questions that you're asking. Can you, for those folks that might not know what that is, can you explain what that is and how, and how that's a helpful thing to think about with, with these, with these questions? Definitely. So the, um, Sorites paradox comes from soros, which is the Greek word for heat. Um, and it is exactly as ancient as it sounds, <laughs> coming from way back in, I think, the third or fourth century uh, BCE. So classically, the paradox has three steps. Um, first, one grain is not a heat. That seems true. Um, second, if any number of grains is not a heap, then adding one extra grain will not make it a heap. Mm -hmm. also seems pretty plausible. Um, therefore, a million grains does not make a heap. And, uh, you know, this is where things start to fall apart. Mm -hmm. um, and this points to kind of a broader difficulty of finding the limits um, of concepts like what is a heap? You know, mm -hmm. we can tell the clear cases on either end, one grain, two grains, three grains, and also a million grains. But at some point in the middle, things change. Mm. Uh, but we can't really uh, agree if you ask 100,000 people, you know, where the line is. Um, you're not going to get necessarily a clear answer. Mm. Um, so I don't think most of us go about counting grains one by one, <laughs> right, see if right. they uh, turn into heaps. Um, but in a much rougher sense, we go about making judgments about vagueness all the time in our daily lives. Sure. You know, how, many, um, how many inches do you have to grow to be tall? Uh, how many hairs do you have to lose to be balding, um, et cetera? And you know, uh, these discussions, about the Sorites paradox are often confined to concepts like bald or tall, where, you know, you right. can fudge the math a bit. The stakes right. are not very high. Not life or death, not life or death. Yeah. Um, but, you know, uh, for, for things like diagnosis, uh, there it seems more important that we have a, a more robust approach to, mm -hmm. to drawing the line. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so you argue in your paper that there are three prominent accounts of vagueness, semantic, epistemic, and ontic. For those who might not be readily familiar with those terms, can you kind of explain what those categories are and what they mean? 100%. So there are roughly three ways of thinking about vagueness um, and also why it's so difficult to dispel. Mm. Um, so big picture Semantic theories say that vagueness stems from how we describe the world, from mm -hmm. our language use and disagreements about it. Uh, epistemic theories say that vagueness is due to what we don't know about the world, mm. you know, a certain kind of ignorance um, or a lack of knowledge. And then ontic accounts say that vagueness just is how the world is. It's the state of the world. Um, itself. It's just something we have to mm -hmm. deal with, like it or not. Um, so to break that down a bit, a, a semantic account, which 
I think I'm most sympathetic to, um, says that uncertainty about um, the borders of disorders emerges when um, you know different people and different communities disagree about how to apply a diagnosis. And these small variations in how we use language mean that we're applying these terms in different ways. Um, and so we can think about, you know, um, for, I guess, a, a different context, you know, we can imagine NBA players might apply the term tall much more stringently than you and I do. Right, um, right, right. And similarly, um, you know, different communities might uh, have their own explanations, like how much functioning is necessary to render a diagnosis. So, mm -hmm. for instance, like before the Industrial Revolution and, uh, you know, the hourly work week as we know it today, um, there were uh, much different demands on, on productivity, on communal living. And so there might be a very, um, even if we imported kind of modern diagnostic standards, there might be a very different way of drawing those lines. Mm. And because it's indeterminate, you know, how exactly we should apply these terms, um, you know, it's correct on some communities' interpretations, but not on others. Uh, that's where vagueness goes. Mm -hmm. So a semantic account suggests that, you know, in theory, we could settle upon a sharp cutoff point. We could identify a moment where you know, here a diagnosis is correct, here it isn't. But before we get to that point, different communities have to kind of reach consensus mm. about where and how to apply these terms. Mm -hmm. uh, so we could learn everything about behavior in the brain, but as long as there's that disagreement uh, in language, we're not going to make that final step. Right. Um, and then... Epistemic theories uh, take a very different approach. So it says that um, there, in fact, already is a sharp cutoff mm, as to where it does exist. Yeah, yeah, and it's out there in the world, but we don't <laughs> we know where, where it, is. it is. Okay, um, and so we're ignorant in in these borderline cases because of something called a margin for error. Mm -hmm. um, where mm -hmm. things have been just a little bit different, um, where we, where or how we applied that term would be different as well. Um, so, you know, if people used uh, bald or tall differently, what exactly those terms would mean would change just a little bit. And the mm -hmm. same thing um, on an epistemic account is true about psychiatric diagnoses. And so this view suggests that it would just be lucky guessing mm. if we happen to discover, <laughs> you know, the correct diagnosis, right. but we could have easily gotten it wrong. Right. So we don't have genuine knowledge of where it is. Um, and so, you know, clinicians uh, can identify clear cases where the symptoms are really distinct, but when we get to that margin of error, mm -hmm. that's where, where vagueness emerges. And so this suggests that, you know, maybe as we learn more about behavior in the brain, those 
margins of error will shrink. Um, and this also suggests that, you know, disorders are not, um, you know, just kind of linguistic conventions um, or in fact that they have uh, much at all to do with what we think about them, or rather that they in fact exist, that they're these sharp, natural kinds. Mm -hmm. And then the last theory, also very different from the other two, is, is an ontic approach. And it says that there is no fact of the matter mm -hmm. about borderline cases um, at all. And this is a somewhat controversial approach because most arguments for it, um, you know, often often get assailed. I I think it's maybe compatible with the semantic approach, but basically what it says is that if we know all there was to know about the brain, and if our language was perfectly precise, there might be some kernel of vagueness that remained, mm. and that would just be vagueness in the world itself. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, because the world had left it unsettled whether a diagnosis is appropriate. Um, and, you know, whatever we did to identify clear cases, we couldn't properly distinguish some of these um, last few instances. And um, in a way, anti-fakeness suggests that the kind of fuzziness that uh, is all over psychiatry, is all over a lot of our everyday concepts, is just mm. a natural and inevitable feature of the world. Um, and so some of these might be compatible, you know, we might reduce other kinds of vagueness a bit, and then there might be some left. Um, but this basically says that we'll never get all the way there. Right. That it's not, it's just, it's not perfect. I'm going to ask you a question that I didn't list in my questions that I wanted to ask yeah. you that I just thought of, because I'm, I'm curious now, so I don't want to throw you off. But no, no, go ahead. What, what's, and maybe you can just give me some historical context. Cause, cause what I'm thinking when you're describing all of this is, isn't this kind of where the term spectrum comes from? So like when, when there's a diagnosis of somebody on a spectrum of this, um, is, was that a result of this vagueness? Is that a result of people just understanding more? Does, can that spectrum terminology be applied to other things? Could you say, you know, Alzheimer's spectrum or anxiety spectrum or, you know, bipolar spectrum. Could you, could you just apply that to everything to, to, to kind of help with the, with the vagueness or is that, does that have more ramifications with that specific, specific types of diagnoses? Yeah, that's a definitely a very interesting question. I mean, I think there are sort of two halves to that. And the first side is that there definitely has been a shift towards um, recognizing that, there's a lot of um, that a lot of psychiatry is dimensional mm -hmm. um, that it's on a spectrum and this is true both in terms of symptoms um, you know degrees uh, to which they're expressed and also in terms of diagnoses themselves that mm -hmm. it might not be like a discrete category um, that we can neatly label as a disorder but that there's a um, you know, long spectrum from uh, what we consider ordinary behavior um, to what we may issue a diagnosis for. And this especially pops up with 
personality disorders, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. you know, which are very controversial as these independently existing categories. And um, as far as vagueness goes, um, I I think certainly, especially on like an ontic account, the idea that this is all dimensional seems very much in line. Um, So I think that, you know, that's something that pervades throughout. Um, But on on the other hand, even um, like a dimensional approach still has issues with vagueness. Right. There's still ends. There's still ends to the spectrum. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, yeah. Because whether we have like a single sharp cutoff or two fuzzier cutoffs, then we have to ask like, okay, is there vagueness at either end of the threshold? Right. Yeah, there's the, exactly. And and therein lies the paradox because there's got to be a, there's a point where it either is or it isn't, even if you soften the middle. Um, yeah. So I think, yeah, it's one of those things where we have to figure out like which kinds of vagueness matter. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, when do we, uh, yeah, when, when is it something that should change the way we're making clinical decisions and when? Right. Right. We wave our hands a little bit. Yeah. And that that's that's exactly kind of leading into my next question, which is um, how does understanding the, the nuance uh, and the definitions and the arguments for vagueness, how, how does all of this benefit uh, clinical practitioners and patients in their day to day practices and in how they're receiving care? Absolutely. So um, I guess big picture, a lot of the. I guess, concepts and and themes that we've talked about um, can inform, you know, where we draw the line, are we being too stringent or too hasty, and and also, you know, what kinds of manuals should clinicians use, what kinds of research Mm -hmm. should they pursue. Um, So to make that a bit more specific for, I mean, I think some of these models don't provide much insight at all. Um, Like I think an epistemic account, you know, suggests that we should treat conditions as kind of discrete. Mm. I think this is really difficult to apply in practice. Mm. Um, You know, it's hard to imagine uh, that there is like a single cutoff point in reality and that we should just stumble upon it. Um, You know, and even manuals that, treat disorders as these discrete natural kinds often take a more dimensional approach. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I do think there's more to be gleaned in practice from like a semantic account, which says that, you know, dwelling on how different communities use language and use psychiatric terms can inform uh, diagnoses going forward. You know, so for instance, we might look at how certain ways of describing symptoms get passed over more than others. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, you know, lots of people are familiar with the idea that, um, you know, it can be difficult to communicate your lived experience in a way that's amenable to getting a diagnosis, especially for, you know, I mean, certainly for invisible, um, mm-hmm. you know, mental health issues and also for things like chronic pain. Um, right, right. And at the same time, 
you know, we can um, think about, you know, what terms get applied disproportionately to mm -hmm. certain communities, and this shapes out historically. Um, so, for instance, schizophrenia, when it was first developed, was largely diagnosed in nonviolent white petty criminals, but the DSM changed in the 1960s, and suddenly uh, it began to be diagnosed in Black people, especially who were visibly involved in civil rights activism at mm. staggering rates. Mm. And interesting, not surprising, but interesting. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. historians have traced this to um, changes in the language of the diagnostic criteria. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. You know, the addition of like terms about hostility and aggression that were then applied disproportionately to black folks right. and so thinking about the ways in which language gets used and how different communities apply them um, can really inform how um, how we understand these conditions going forward mm -hmm. and then you know i think there are also some insights we can draw from an ontic approach um, you know, on the one hand, um, an ontic approach is uh, a little bit of a dead end, I'll admit, because it says that, you know, there's a point at which we can't make things work. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we should try to reduce some of these other kinds of vagueness. We should learn about language. We should learn about the brain and behavior and people's lived experiences. But at a certain point, we can't go further. Um, but that does also suggest that, um, you know, at a certain point, we should consider factors other than, um, you know, psychological knowledge or other than linguistic precision when we're deciding whether to diagnose. Mm -hmm. um, you know, given that getting a diagnosis has all these impacts on people's lives and their autonomy, um, you know, Perhaps we should be considering other factors. We should be looking at more structural considerations um, when we're issuing a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, maybe we need to consider a broader scope of concerns. So what what's next for you research-wise? Are there any upcoming papers or studies that you'd like to share with us? Well, I have, um, so I've just begun law school at, NYU this Oh, congratulations. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, so my my days have been um, somewhat consumed. I bet. Uh, yeah. I mean, broadly, I, I hope to, you know, I'm, I hope to continue exploring some of the issues that drove me to write this paper, you know, mm -hmm. classification and disability, but uh, also extending some of my research on like algorithms and um, ableist biases. So mm -hmm. I am currently in the depths of exam prep, but right now I am working on a paper about AI and the First Amendment. Oh, wow. That draws together um, technology and law, but also, uh, you know, philosophy of mind. Mm -hmm. So there's mm -hmm. been a lot of buzz about AI consciousness in yeah. recent years, mm -hmm. which is at least on my mind, very overhyped. And with that, there's been uh, even some people calling to protect 
AI-generated speech as if it were human speech. Mm. Um, and this seems like a pretty big problem as the natural language processing algorithms um, are, which can understand or at least mimic uh, how you and I talk, are very biased and can generate pretty convincing misinformation. So it mm -hmm. seems like we should not be shielding that from regulation. Mm. Um, so the argument goes, you know, the ways in which AI process information is different enough from human cognition that algorithms can't be said to really understand the outputs they're generating, that they aren't forming political opinions or making mm -hmm. judgments of the right. kind protected right. by the First Amendment. Um, so that's still a bit at the early stages, but... When you said law school, I was like, oh, well, you've just gone, you know, you've just made a 90 degree turn, but you haven't. You just synthesized that perfectly for me. That's great. I love it. It's it's all somehow coming together. Right? Um, it, 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 it always does somehow. <laughs> yeah. So um, with any luck, that, and then I, I have a paper about, um, you know, also misinformation, um, you know, a bit about cognitive science and philosophy of mind. So why it's so persuasive, why mm -hmm, it's so mm -hmm. difficult to dislodge. Um, hopefully that'll be coming out sometime sooner, but Oh, I'm I'm intrigued to read that. It's so it's so I'm so tickled too because the last guest on our podcast was uh, a researcher who was talking about um, political propaganda online, and I just think from Journal of Democracy, and I just think it's so funny that we that you know these two very disparate papers and disciplines have so many ties together. That's what I love about about academic scholarship is that you can you can weave those connections um, even if it seems like you can't when you start. By the end of the conversation, you can. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. It's definitely really um, something very fascinating to be looking into because, you know, if you look at all of the research that's existed before and all of the research since 2019, right, you know, worlds apart. So interesting. Very cool. I thank you so much for your time today. This has been so interesting. And I and I, I can't wait to read those um, those papers that you just discussed. And best of luck with law school. Oh, absolutely. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me and inviting me on. This podcast is a production of Hopkins Press. For more information, please visit press.jhu.edu.